Chapter 11 of Diary of a Pilgrimage by Jerome K. Jerome. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Michael Brook. Tuesday the 27th. Continued. We talk on. An argument. The story that transformed the world. And now, as to the right or wrong of the performance as a whole, do you see any objection to the play from a religious point of view? No, I reply, I do not. Nor do I understand how anybody else, and least of all a really believing Christian, can either. To argue, as some do, that Christianity should be treated as a sacred mystery is to argue against the whole scheme of Christianity. It was Christ himself that rent the veil of the temple and brought religion down into the streets and marketplaces of the world. Christ was a common man. He lived a common life, among common men and women. He died a common death. His own methods of teaching were what a Saturday reviewer, had he to deal with the case, would undoubtedly term vulgar. The roots of Christianity are planted deep down in the very soil of life, amid all that is commonplace and mean and petty and everyday. Its strength lies in its simplicity, its homely humanness. It has spread itself through the world by speaking to the hearts rather than to the heads of men. If it is still to live and grow, it must be helped along by such methods as these peasant players of Oberammergau employ, not by high-class essays and the learned discussions of the cultured. The crowded audience that sat beside us in the theatre yesterday saw Christ of Nazareth nearer than any book, however inspired, could bring him to them, clearer than any words, however eloquent, could show him. They saw the sorrow of his patient face. They heard his deep tones calling to them. They saw him in the hour of his so-called triumph, wending his way through the narrow streets of Jerusalem, the multitude that thronged round him, waving their branches of green palms and shouting loud hosannas. What a poor scene of triumph! A poor-clad, pale-faced man, mounted upon the back of a shuffling, unwilling little grey donkey, passing slowly through the byways of a city, busy upon other things. Beside him, a little band of worn, anxious men, clad in threadbare garments, fishermen, petty clerks and the like, and, following, a noisy rabble, shouting, as crowds in all lands and in all times shout, and as dogs bark, they know not why, because others are shouting or barking. And that scene marks the highest triumph won while he lived on earth by the village carpenter of Galilee, about whom the world has been fighting and thinking and talking so hard for the last eighteen hundred years. They saw him, angry and indignant, driving out the desecrators from the temple. They saw the rabble, who a few brief moments before had followed him, shouting Hosanna, slinking away from him to shout with his foes. They saw the high priests, in their robes of white, with the rabbis and doctors, all the great and learned in the land, sitting late into the night beneath the vaulted roof of the Sanhedrin's council hall, plotting his death. They saw him supping with his disciples in the house of Simon. They saw poor, loving Mary Magdalene wash his feet with costly ointment, that might have been sold for three hundred pence, and the money given to the poor, and us. Judas was so thoughtful for the poor, so eager that other people should sell all they had and give the money to the poor, and us. Methinks that, even in this nineteenth century, one can still hear from many a tub and platform the voice of Judas, complaining of all waste, 
and pleading for the poor, and us. They were present at the parting of Mary and Jesus by Bethany, and it will be many a day before the memory of that scene ceases to vibrate in their hearts. It is the scene that brings the humanness of the great tragedy most closely home to us. Jesus is going to face sorrow and death at Jerusalem. Mary's instinct tells her that this is so, and she pleads to him to stay. Poor Mary! To others he is the Christ, the Saviour of mankind, setting forth upon his mighty mission to redeem the world. To loving Mary mother he is her son, the baby she has suckled at her breast, the little one she has crooned to sleep upon her lap, whose little cheek has lain against her heart, whose little feet have made sweet music through the poor home at Bethany. He is her boy, her child. She would wrap her mother's arms around him and hold him safe against all the world, against even heaven itself. Never, in any human drama, have I witnessed a more moving scene than this. Never has the voice of any actress, and I have seen some of the greatest, if any great ones are living, stirred my heart, as did the voice of Rosa Lang, the burgomaster's daughter. It was not the voice of one woman, it was the voice of motherdom, gathered together from all the world over. Oliver Wendell Holmes, in The Autocrat of the Breakfast Table, I think, confesses to having been bewitched at different times by two women's voices, and adds that both these voices belong to German women. I am not surprised at either statement of the good doctors. I am sure, if a man did fall in love with a voice, he would find, on tracing it to its source, that it was the voice of some homely-looking German woman. I have never heard such exquisite soul-drawing music in my life as I have more than once heard float from the lips of some sweet-faced German Fraulein when she opened her mouth to speak. The voice has been so pure, so clear, so deep, so full of soft caressing tenderness, so strong to comfort, so gentle to soothe, it has seemed like one of those harmonies musicians tell us that they dream of, but can never chain to earth. As I sat in the theatre, listening to the wondrous tones of this mountain peasant woman, rising and falling like the murmur of a sea, filling the vast sky-covered building with their yearning notes, stirring like a great wind stirs aeolian strings, the thousands of trembling hearts around her, it seemed to me that I was indeed listening to the voice of the mother of the world, of Mother Nature herself. They saw him, as they had often seen him in pictures, sitting for the last time with his disciples at supper. But yesterday they saw him, not a mute, moveless figure, posed in conventional, meaningless attitude, but a living, loving man, sitting in fellowship with the dear friends that against all the world had believed in him, and had followed his poor fortunes, talking with them for the last sweet time, comforting them. They heard him bless the bread and wine that they themselves to this day take in remembrance of him. They saw his agony in the garden of Gethsemane, the human shrinking from the cup of pain. They saw the false friends Judas betray him with a kiss. Alas, poor Judas, he loved Jesus in his way like the rest did. It was only his fear of poverty that made him betray his master. He was so poor, he wanted the money so badly. We cry out in horror against Judas. Let us pray, rather, that we are never tempted to do a shameful action for a few pieces of silver. The fear of poverty ever did, and ever will, make scamps of men. We would like to be faithful and noble and just, only really times are so bad that we cannot afford it. As Becky Sharp says, 
it is so easy to be good and noble on five thousand a year so very hard to be it on the mere five if judas had only been a well-to-do man he might have been saint judas this day instead of cursed judas he was not bad he had only one failing the failing that makes the difference between a saint and a villain all the world over he was a coward he was afraid of being poor they saw him pale and silent dragged now before the priests of his own countrymen and now before the roman governor while the voice of the people the people who had cried hosanna to him shouted crucify him crucify him they saw him bleeding from the crown of thorns they saw him still followed by the barking mob sink beneath the burden of his cross they saw the woman wipe the bloody sweat from off his face they saw the last long silent look between the mother and the son as journeying upward to his death he passed her in the narrow way through which he once had ridden in brief-lived triumph they heard her low sob as she turned away leaning on mary magdalen they saw him nailed upon the cross between the thieves they saw the blood start from his side they heard his last cry to his god they saw him rise victorious over death few believing christians among the vast audience but must have passed out from that strange playhouse with their belief and love strengthened the god of the christian for his sake became a man and lived and suffered and died as a man and as a man living suffering dying among other men he had that day seen him the man of powerful imagination needs no aid from mimicry however excellent however reverent to unroll before him in its simple grandeur the great tragedy on which the curtain fell at calvary some eighteen and a half centuries ago a cultivated mind needs no story of human suffering to win or hold it to a faith but the imaginative and cultured are few and far between and the peasants of oberammergau can plead as their master himself once pleaded that they seek not to help the learned but the lowly the unbeliever also passes out into the village street full of food for thought the rude sermon preached in this hillside temple has shown to him clearer than he could have seen before the secret wherein lies the strength of christianity the reason why of all the faiths that nature has taught to her children to help them in their need to satisfy the hunger of their souls this faith born by the sea of galilee has spread the farthest over the world and struck its note the deepest into human life not by his doctrines not even by his promises has christ laid hold upon the hearts of men but by the story of his life End of chapter eleven